I would ask you to turn um, in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 7, and then we'll look at our catechism lesson for the day on um, Lord's Day 43 in the back of the hymnal. We are in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. What are the three sections of the Catechism? Guilt, grace, gratitude, sin, salvation, service, misery, deliverance, gratitude, however you may have memorized it. Uh, the Catechism, of course, is written um, by Ursinus and Olivianus, uh, men uh, in the previous century, uh, but it is a, a biblical document in that it's a faithful reflection of the Scriptures, um, and it's a faithful method of teaching which Jesus himself used as a pedagogical method, question and answer, often referred to uh, in today's pedagogical circles as a Socratic method, but actually uh, pioneered uh, by Jesus and other rabbis. Um, and the outline, the catechism follows the outline of the Book of Romans, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And we are in the third part of uh, the catechism, the gratitude or the service section. Having been delivered from sin and misery uh, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone, we are asked how we are to thank God for delivering us from sin and misery. Uh, misery. And uh, Jesus himself told us that if we love him, we are to keep his commandments, not in order to be accepted by God, but because he has graciously accepted us uh, in Jesus Christ. So we're on page 892 in the back of the hymnal. We'll turn to scripture in a moment to validate and verify what we learn in this lesson. But page 892... I'll ask the question and ask you to respond with, I'm sorry, uh, page 893, sorry. Uh, respond with the answer. What is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? Nine of the Ten Commandments are negative, as is this one. However, um, implied um, in every commandment is not only a prohibition but a requirement. And it's upon the requirement of the Ninth Commandment that we focus today. That is, that last uh, paragraph there, do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. And so this morning's sermon from Matthew chapter 7, if you're open there, is um, entitled... Protecting and promoting your neighbor's reputation. We'll read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus himself is speaking here. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, 
Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is uh, the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will say clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Uh, four points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the problem. Secondly, the protections. Thirdly, the propitiation. And fourthly, the process. So the problem, the protections, the propitiation, and the process. You may or may not know, uh, well, let me back up a minute. Uh, almost everybody knows verse 1 in chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. What you may not know is that that is now the best-known verse in the Bible. The best-known verse in the Bible is Matthew 7, verse 1. It used to be John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son to do whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's a testimony to the state of our culture that that has been supplanted by this. And yet, despite its being the best-known verse in the Bible, it is also one of the most uh, misinterpreted and misunderstood passages as well. Which brings us to the problem. All right. The problem here is not a prohibition against judgment. All right. Let's get that clear at the outset. That is the popular misunderstanding and misinterpretation of this word. Uh, people throw this around as if somehow uh, it's forbidding or prohibiting uh, making any kind of judgment or somebody. Don't judge me, people say. Right. Now, why is it not a blanket prohibition? Well, look down at verse 6, which we just read, and you'll see why. Do not give dogs what is holy. Well, it would seem to me that you would have to make a judgment in order to determine who's a dog and who isn't. Right? So, Jesus, in the same section, renders, in effect, a judgment. There are people that are dogs and don't give them what's holy. Or pigs, don't throw your pearls before pigs. This is a metaphorical reference, not literal, all right? So the prohibition, all right, uh, is the problem. It's not a prohibition. The problem that Jesus is addressing, is addressing is hypocrisy, all right? Hypocrisy. You can see that in uh, verse um, 5. You hypocrite. Right? First take the log out of your own eye. What was going on here? All right? It's the problem of distorting the truth in order to hurt one's neighbor. All right? Uh, the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. That is, the same standard that you use to judge others will be the standard by which you are judged. But hypocrites don't do that. Whether they are self-righteous or whether they are just ignorant, they judge people by one standard and then excuse themselves. They want to take the speck out of somebody else's eye without removing the log that's in their own eye. So the problem here is not a prohibition, it's hypocrisy, all right? So the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, faithfully reflecting what Jesus is instructing here, all right, is that we have an obligation to defend and protect our neighbor's good name, all right, or our neighbor's reputation. So 
The problem is not a prohibition, it's hypocrisy. And of course the question should be asked, are you and I guilty of that hypocrisy? Are you and I guilty of condemning others but giving ourselves a pass? All right? Uh, because then this is a passage that speaks to you, as it speaks to me. Well, what about the protections? All right? If we are to protect and promote our neighbor's reputation, if the positive requirement in the Ninth Commandment, according to the Catechism, faithfully reflecting the Bible, is that we are to defend our neighbor's good name, what protections are there for that when we examine the Bible? All right? Well, in Scripture, a number of things, uh, and they've been reflected in Western jurisprudence or in Western civil law down throughout the century. You may or may not know that the Bible is actually the basis for Western civil law. If you go to, back to uh, Black's Law, if you go back to, uh, uh, yeah, any number of times I'll pass on the historical references, uh, the Bible has formed the basis for Western civil law. All right? And in Scripture, a person is innocent until proven guilty. All right? We have this in our own courts today. A uh, person is innocent until proven guilty. That is, they are protected. All right? And a number of other things. First of all, look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5 for one protection. That is, examine yourself first. Before you enter into a judgment or pronouncement of judgment with respect to somebody else, check yourself out first, all right, to make sure that you are not guilty of the very thing of which you are accusing or judging somebody else. It would be very interesting if this was actually put into practice the way that the Bible does, because the Bible says that if you falsely accuse somebody of, let's say, a crime, all right, and they are innocent, then you, for falsely accusing them, will incur the penalty for falsely that would have been due to the person that was guilty of the crime. So, I steal something, I accuse you of stealing it, you're proven innocent, I have to pay uh, the penalty for the crime of stealing, for falsely accusing somebody. Very interesting. Anyway, so not a little aside there, all right? So the first protection is you should examine yourself. Set aside your pride, all right? It's pride that makes us judge others before we even look at ourselves. Look at Galatians chapter 6, for example. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should condemn him in a spirit of righteousness. Uh, oh, that's not what it says. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then notice the next sentence. Keep watch on yourself. Right? Keep watch on yourself. Check yourself out. Lest you also be tempted. Kindness, love, charity towards fellow sinners. Why? Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We understand sin, or we ought to, right? But then, hey, keep watch on yourself. You could fall into the very same sin, all right? So, first protection, check yourself out first. Second, the burden of proof is on the accuser, 
in the Bible. The burden of proof is on the accuser in the Bible, all right? So, we still have this in a court of law today. One person cannot, one person's leveling an accusation against another is not sufficient, all right, legally, to convict somebody. There must be corroborating evidence, all right? You want to understand that fancy term, talk to Mr. Contreras, he'll explain it to you, all right, as a former police officer, either Mr. Contreras. <laughs> uh, corroborating evidence is simply a second witness, whether that is a person or whether that is some line of evidence that uh, backs up the accusation or the assertion, all right? In the Bible, you'll recall, everything is established on the basis of two or three witnesses, that's simply a protection for people that somebody just can't come along, randomly accuse you, condemn you, and have you sentenced as a result of that. That's a protection, right? So a person is innocent until they're proven guilty, and the burden of proof is not on the guilty to prove themselves innocent, but it's on the accuser to prove the person guilty, all right? Third, look at Matthew chapter 18 a little bit further on. Another protection Matthew chapter 18. Here's a pattern for confronting sin in another. Okay? So, it's a protection because you're not to make a rush to judgment and condemnation, right? So here's a protection, all right? Matthew 18, um, we read verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Notice the pattern of confronting and correcting. Initially, it's private, not public. It's private, not public. Why? Because as the word for atonement or sin uh, atonement, the blood atonement, in the Bible is kafar in Hebrew. It means to cover. And that's what God has done with your sin and with mine by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's covered that sin, hidden it from his sight, and we're no longer guilty. If you are a Christian, the blood of Jesus Christ does not only cleanse you from your sin, but it hides your sin, it covers it from God's sight. God no longer holds that sin against you. He has forgiven you for the sake of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. If you're not a Christian, that's how you can be forgiven, by fleeing to the covering or the refuge of the blood of Jesus Christ, all right? But the point is, is that God covers sin. And we should be concerned to cover sin as well. So we shouldn't make a rush to judgment and then publicly shout out to the whole world, nah, 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 nah. No, we should be concerned to protect our brothers and sisters and protect our neighbor and cover them. So the first step is private, not public, all right? And uh, look at, um, uh, read on here, verse 17, if he refuses to listen uh, to two or three witnesses, uh, tell it to the church. 
and this is officially, it's not like get up in front of church and say, hey, look what I found, look at what so-and-so did. No, it's telling it to the officers of the church, reported to the church as institute, all right, and the, uh, 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 and the officers, right? Um, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Note, I just need to add parenthetically here, this is a functional judgment. So again, we'll look a little bit more closely later, all right? Here's a judgment, all right? If somebody doesn't listen, you're to treat them like an unbeliever. That's a functional judgment. Why do I mean by functional? We all need to know how to relate to each other, right? How do I relate to so-and-so? How do I relate to somebody that's been excommunicated? How do I relate to somebody that's not a Christian, right? We have to make some kind of judgment as to how to do that. That's a functional judgment. But notice, it's not a final judgment. Jesus isn't saying if somebody doesn't listen and is excommunicated, that's it, they're going to hell, right? Because I, if you don't know, I, let me tell you as somebody with 35 years experience in the church, all right, is that many people that have been excommunicated repent. I was telling somebody the other day, uh, we had to discipline somebody when I was in Michigan. We had to excommunicate him. He was restored. The whole church rejoiced. Large church, 600 people. We were thrilled. This person had come back, welcome him back, and, and only to have to excommunicate him again because he fell into the very same sin not long afterwards. I'm glad to report to you, he repented again. And he is a uh, flourishing Christian. Now he lives in Arizona, good friend of mine. Anyway, all right, back to the text. All right. So here's a pattern for confronting and correcting. Private, not public at first. And note the values here, right? Work it out at the most private level. That's what you always want to do. One-on-one first. Then, if that doesn't work, well, then widen the circle, but don't widen it too far. No, then two or three witnesses. Then, if that doesn't work, then widen the circle as well. Tell it to the church. Get the officers involved, right? But first, what are you trying? You're trying to keep it as private as possible, right? Why? Because we're in the business of covering. We're in the business of forgiving. We're in the business of restoring, Right? Even when somebody's excommunicated, right? <clears throat> and we're dealing with discipline cases now, and, and hopefully it doesn't result in excommunication, but when somebody's excommunicated, the purpose is to restore them. It's, it's not to separate them from the church, it's to separate them from their sin so that they can be reconciled to God's people, restored to God's people, reconciled to God, restored to fellowship with God, right? And Oftentimes, the failure of the church to practice discipline leads to rampant gossip. I'm thankful that I am not aware of gossip being used as a form of discipline in this congregation. But in many Christian churches, that's how discipline is conducted. It's not the officers getting involved, confronting somebody about their sin, pleading with them to be restored. Right, it's just everybody talking about it. Giving somebody a bad name. Shunning them. Making them feel shameful. No. Here's the pattern. Matthew 18. 
And notice, notice, open confrontation, burden of proof, church participation, and the presence of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the man is involved in an incestuous relationship, right? Peter, uh, Paul uh, says to the church at Corinth, he says, when I am with you and in the, per- in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, when discipline is conducted, it's Jesus Christ exercising discipline pro- when it's properly done. And Paul says, hand that, hand that person over to Satan. That is, put him out of the church. Get out of the confines of the covenant community and ha- put him out in the world. Right? And significantly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, so that his soul may be saved. That's the purpose. Right? It's not to punish somebody. It's to separate them from their sin. Talk more about discipline another time. Uh, Fourth, protection. What's the first? Examine yourself. Second, burden of proof is on the accuser. Two or three witnesses. Matthew 18, pattern or confronting. Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, verse 4. This is particularly instructive. Proverbs 17, verse 4. You there? I want you to see this. All right, you there? An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Somebody comes to you and is spreading gossip, rumors, whatever it is. You could be guilty for listening to it. That's what Proverbs is saying. This is a matter of wisdom. Right? Proverbs is a book that's written to young men to teach them how to be wise. Right? And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who fear the Lord don't listen to those who spread gossip, rumors, Etc. So let's just be practical, okay? Somebody comes to you and says, hey, did you hear this about so-and-so? And it's a real juicy morsel or tidbit, right? It's like, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. How many of you perhaps have titillated or tantalized yourself on the sexual transgressions of leaders in the Christian church like Rabbi Zacharias or others in reading about them? I see those, I I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. And of course, I'm not accusing journalists of gossip, it's just, I don't want to know the graphic details of their sinful falls. Or what's his name here in New York at Hillsong? I don't want to know. Turn the page. Change the screen. I have no interest. Because covering, protecting. Fifth protection. Look at Joshua chapter 7 and verse 9. Here's pleading, I won't go into depth and detail on the context, but 
for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, right, and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? God himself is concerned for his name. And it's because God is concerned for his name that he says you should be concerned to protect and promote your neighbor's good name. This isn't just a matter of ethical instruction or moral guidance. It's theocentric. We are to be like God, who has concern for his name, should have concern for our name. Proverbs talks about a good name is more valuable than treasures, and we should be concerned to protect and promote our neighbor's good name. All right, so we've looked at the problem in Matthew 7. We've looked at the protections the Bible provides. Let's look at propitiation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay, uh, verse uh, 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Propitiation, big word. Maddox, you remember memorizing the definition of propitiation? No? All right, I'm going to ask you next week, so get it straight. All right. Propitiation is to turn aside the wrath of God, Maddox. Turn aside the wrath of God, all right? God, God's wrath rests on all those who are outside of Jesus Christ. Their sin is an offense to him, all right? And he takes it personally. And he will judge that sin, and his wrath will be executed either, in, uh, either in now or in, uh, finally in hell. So there's a need for you to pay the penalty for your sin to be reconciled to God. Will it be paid by Jesus Christ, whom God has provided? As the propitiation, as the sacrifice, as the blood-bought Savior, forgiver of sinners? Or will you pay that penalty when God executes his wrath for all eternity and sending you to hell? But notice, it's in the context of speech. It's in the context of speech. The minor prophet says... God purifies our lips. Isaiah, in that great chapter, Isaiah 6, says God took a a coal from the altar and purified the lips of Isaiah. And he's purified the lips of his people that we might call upon his name, that we might 
declare his excellencies, that we might sing his praises, and that we might use our lips for good, for righteousness, not for reviling, for protecting and promoting our neighbor's good name. Okay, last thing, the process. We hasten to a conclusion here. All right, turn to John chapter 7, verse 24. John chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus, another reason why the problem in Matthew 7, 1 is not a prohibition, Jesus himself commands his disciples to judge. We're commanded by God to judge, right? Um, John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge, an imperative, a command, with right judgment. Jesus instructs his disciples here to judge. Notice, don't judge by mere appearances, right? Secondly, just a word of advice here, do not judge on disputable matters. For you theologues, the ethical term is adiaphora, that is matters of indifference, right? Don't judge on disputable matters, matters of indifference. One man thinks he can eat meat, another thinks he has to have vegetables. One man thinks you shouldn't drink, another thinks it's okay to drink. One says rock and roll is my favorite genre of music, another says that's the devil's music. No, no, no. Don't judge on disputable matters. They're adiaphora, they're indifferent. Don't judge. Theologically, ethically, morally, again, for you theologues, this is a matter of Christian liberty. You can read the article in the Westminster Confession of Faith on Christian liberty. There are matters in the Christian life where there's freedom. There's freedom. We're not legalists. We're not fundamentalists. As Jay Gresham Mason used to say, we believe in the fundamentals, but we're not fundamentalists. We don't believe in the dictum, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with boys that do. Now, maybe you shouldn't go with boys that do, but it's not prohibited, all right? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. I'm trying to be very helpful to you here when it comes to judging, all right? So bear with me. Just a couple of points. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're commanded to judge. How should we judge? We shouldn't judge by appearances. We shouldn't judge on disputable matters. There's Christian liberty, right? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Don't judge people's motives. Now, if you're like me, and I know you are because you're a sinner just like me, all right? One of the first things we do is, well, I think it's because of this. As if we had some inscrutable window into a person's heart. That should always be followed by a qualification, but I don't know. It may be, I suspect, 
If you think of ABC, it seems like, but don't judge people's motives. Judge with righteous judgment. What's righteous judgment? According to the standard of God's word. According to the standard of God's word. If you, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to give you examples. Fifth, go back to the previous point. Judge yourself first. Make sure you're not guilty of that which you're condemning somebody else for. And sixth, following what we talked about in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, judge aiming at restoration. Aiming at restoration. We're called by the ninth commandment not to bear false witness, the prohibition, but we're called positively to protect and promote our neighbor's reputation and his good name. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the provisions of your word. We thank you that in that light we see light, and we thank you that it is a light unto our path. Help us to judge with righteous judgment, and uh, we ask that you would uh, be with us uh, to keep us from sin and to walk in the paths of holiness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.